RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Here at RCR, we've talked a lot about GM and concerns about the loosening of regulations around GM in New Zealand seems to be happening in other parts of the world. And we've talked to a few people already. I want to welcome on the program Professor Jack Heineman, Professor in the School of Biological Sciences, University of Canterbury, Director of the Centre for Integrated Research in Biosafety. Professor Heineman, thanks for coming on our radio station. Nice to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a concerted effort globally, isn't it? This loosening up call for deregulation in uh, across the entire GE front. And there are a few categories in there, which I'll read out and I'll ask you to explain. But this is global, right? It is global, and we're seeing evidence of it everywhere. You have Europe, the U.S. In fact, in the last two days, I've been attending a workshop in the Convention of Biological Diversity, which is the home of the Cartagena Protocol, which is the international agreement on how to handle biosafety risks from genetically modified organisms. And even there, we see repeatedly the same kinds of arguments, even the same phraseology that are being used in New Zealand and elsewhere in the world. If you um, had the pleasure of reading the Ministry for the Environment's document, consultation document on changing biosafety requirements in laboratories. You would have seen in the statement attributed to the minister in the foreword, a statement that with uh, that was plagiarized directly from an industry website. Uh, yeah. so, so it's not even, there's not even any shame in it. <laughs> well, that tells you they're not really doing any hard work on it, right? It's copy, copy paste, isn't it? They're they're choosing to listen to to particular voices in this matter, and to allow those voices to produce a narrative for them that they think will be convincing to broader society, rather than doing it the other way around and saying, how do we best use this technology, and in best using it, how do we best control inevitable harms that can come from any technology, to ensure that. Uh, we introduce safe products. Well, I, I get um, that uh, that medical advances are used to promote this technology. Mind you, look at the last three years. It's been a train wreck. So I don't know if that convinces anyone. But surely it's common sense to even to simple people like me in this matter that you can just visualize how this can go terribly wrong without ha- having to think about it really at all. Right. So the the way that argument is turned around is to say, well, we've been doing genetic engineering now for 40 or 50 years, and there's no uh, bona fide evidence of harm from the products after they've been released into the environment or used in food. And my answer to that, and and I think what you're getting at, is that there shouldn't be because it's been regulated. We, they've gone through a exactly. regulatory process that was designed to prevent the use of the technology to create something that caused harm to human health or the environment. Yep. But then they're using this past evidence to say, well, we should define out of scope certain ways of doing genetic engineering, define them out of scope of the legislation so that they don't have to be subjected to a routine risk assessment and social oversight. And this is the part that rankles me because it's using a completely inappropriate evidence base to forecast safety and predetermine safety 
when the process is becoming easier and applied at higher scales across environments and species. And that is the root source of risk, that there will be an uncontrolled number and amount of modifications being made by all sorts of people outside of normally contained laboratories. Can we even ask the fundamental question, do we need any of this technology really? It seems to me that the supermarkets are full of food, (laughs) <laughs> Most people, I've been through cancer and heart treatment. There are treatments for that. I don't expect to have my genes edited or future generations' genes edited to conquer that one um, when diet seems to go a long way. Just saying. So, um, is something being promoted here that's that it's just a fevered dream of researchers and enthusiasts, but not really needed, really? Uh, I am a genetic engineer. All yeah. right. So, so well, take I don't this... mean to insult you or no, no, no. minimize you, but <laughs> not at all. But, but justify your existence. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I just wanted to declare that you know, I I do have an interest in genetic engineering as a genetic engineer, and I am an advocate for the technology. So many of the things you just listed have become possible or improved because of the use of this technology. Right. But it's fundamentally different to use this technology to understand how tumors work, or to assist in the identification of the genetic basis for traits and the crops that we use for food. A fundamental difference between doing that and producing something that's genetically engineered for release in the environment. That's the kind of technology that has had questionable value in the 30 so uh, odd years that we have been releasing genetically engineered organisms into the environment. Now, that's not to say that one couldn't or that um, I may be underestimating the value of the ones that exist, but we don't have a world full of wonderful products. We have a very small number of products that have been commercialized as genetically engineered organisms, but we have tons and tons and tons of benefit from the technology being used as a research tool. Okay. Um, can we get our head around the terms? Because the, every time I look, there seem to be more. GM, <laughs> GMO, GE, GE. Can we go, go through some of those? Because they all seem sort of yeah. the same but distinct as well. So where do you want yes. to start? And that's part of that's part of how, I guess, society is being led by the nose to a particular narrative. Create a lot of technical-sounding terms. Define them in highly... Uh, narrow ways and then try to say that, well, this doesn't apply because it's different. We're talking about gene technology. Fundamentally, this is an issue of having techniques that accelerate the changes, the pace of changes we can make in organisms in their, at their genetic level. Then these techniques proliferate into different categories. So the latest is to talk about new genomic techniques or genome editing and uh, gene silencing. So these are just different kinds of techniques. All of these techniques, except for the gene silencing, existed since the 1970s and the 1980s. There's nothing fundamentally new here. But they're being forecast or, or described as new because um, some of the newer reagents that allow these things to happen have been discovered more recently. Okay. And that's how you get 
how people get confused. So we talk about CRISPR-Cas, the genome editing CRISPR-Cas. Yes, that those reagents called CRISPR and Cas only became available to us in the last decade or so. But the idea of how they work and other reagents that work that way have been available for 30, 40, 50 years, just not commercially viable as reagents for all the kinds of organisms we might want to genetically modify. So gene editing has been around for and known about for a long time. It's just yes. that the, a, a way of doing it kind of um, has come about where it's it's a lot easier to do because I do a lot of editing, you know, um, <laughs> yes. audio and video space. That's yeah. clipping stuff out, putting other stuff back in. Presume that's kind of what CRISPR editing is, is it? Well, you know, again, it's it's a clumsy metaphor, but yep. one that's designed to make it sound familiar and safe to uh, you. Okay. So, so yes, we we've had these kinds of tools. It's it's sort of like a screwdriver versus an electric drill with inserts that allow you to drive screws. Right. The the reagents that were predominant in the 70s and 80s and 90s for the kinds of reactions now being called genome editing reactions, they were like your conventional single head screwdriver. That's a very limiting, scale limiting instrument. But the new genome techniques are based on uh, editing reagents that are more like that electric drill that right. not only drives a screw faster, so you can make your change faster or more efficiently, but also you can change the head so you can work with more screws. Uh, okay. You can, yeah. And in these reagents, they work with all species, whereas the old reagents weren't very practical in all species. Okay. Well, thanks for clearing that one up. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So the, the sort of research that is needed to be done, let's say, can that be – can what needs to be done be achieved in the lab? Because it's the big thing is it getting out, right? Leaking out. Can you do what needs to be done without loosening up these rules and, and kind of making it easier to, well, get into a situation where stuff might get out? Well, yes, I think, I think that's the big divide right now. The new reagents are so efficient that you can do genetic engineering in the environment. You can do it from an airplane or a spray pack on someone's back. Wow. It's possible now to do that because of the efficiency of these tools. Because the older tools, the older reagents were less efficient, you had to do them in a laboratory. And so the laboratory isn't just about keeping things safe. Those people like me who were doing genetic engineering needed the laboratory to protect the organisms I was genetically engineering so that I could... I could grow them up, concentrate them to a number that I could study. So that's what made it possible for me to do it. A side effect of doing it in the laboratory is that it added a degree of safety because yeah. it protected me and the environment from any untoward organism that might inadvertently be created. Now that the industry can be freed of the need for the laboratory, it's trying to argue that it should be exempt from using a laboratory for biosafety purposes. In my view, if you look at the latest consultation, because it's specific to medical research or intent, or it, it explicitly says it's uh, intended only for medical research, there's very little that I can see would have any impact 
on medical research at all. Yeah. And the reason is because if you're doing, if you're developing things for medical, medicinal purposes, you already have tons of legislation and laboratory requirements because it's going to be a medicine that make redundant any other safety applications you have because it's going to be a GMO. So the medical research, not much needs to change, if anything at all. So we've just had a gene, well, some, sorry to jump in, but say a gene therapy pushed on the people without any testing. Now you're talking about the COVID vaccine. Yes, I am. Right. Yeah. So now that correct me the, if I'm wrong. Well, um, I I think that there can be a difference between uh, an intervention at the cellular level and a heritable gene technology. So that, um, but you know, look, it is new. It's a new kind of approach. But all those layers of protection and and everything was supposed to be there that you've just sort of kind of flagged, yeah. but in the end, they didn't mean diddly squat, mate. I think they meant more than diddly squat, but not enough for the outcome that you're you're hoping for. The, the point is that still, in an imperfect world, there are a lot more checks and balances on a medicine yeah. than there are on making a GMO corn plant, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and the issue with containment isn't one that's relevant to the safety and efficacy of the medicine. It's one that's relevant to the impact on the environment or the researcher should there be an escape into one or the other. Okay. So, and yeah. that's, that's what we're talking about here. A, a defining out of scope, entire processes of genetic engineering that were previously not allowed to be done outside of a containment facility. Yeah. Which makes sense. So um, it seems that uh, there are plenty of people who are a lot more relaxed about that now. What's that based on? Because that, again, could be considered reckless and dangerous, and you don't want people that reckless throwing stuff around that could make a world of difference if it gets out there. No one knows, you know, calling the shots. Right. So are there a lot more people calling for this? I don't know. I have not really seen oh, the really? evidence that there's a lot more people. Well, the impression what I is, think that is that they are. That's the impression. Well, yeah, because the people who are calling for it tend to be people who uh, have more money, more political power, Right. are people like me at a university who have uh, the skills to talk about, make my case to the public. So is this really a grassroots movement or is this a, a very well-orchestrated uh, and well-backed? means yeah. of creating a narrative that make everything seem like the argument is correct. Now, I'm not saying that everything we do with genetic and genetically engineered organism will be a bad thing. Yeah. But the argument that we should take away from public oversight through the use of regulation, what people are doing as genetic engineers to take that oversight away is not justified by the idea that some things will be beneficial yeah and the evidence that regulation is what's causing us to not have wonder products this is the point you made at the beginning of the interview we don't have that many genetically engineered wonder products and the idea and the question that or the idea that 
we don't because of regulation is a case never made. All we have in the evidence for that is surveys of scientists like me who complain about regulation. Uh, and when you when you actually look at the research that's been done to see how much regulation interferes with the product development line, you find no evidence at all that regulations have been a significant barrier. The point is that you can't do things with genes that some people are promising to do. Right. Okay. So uh, the the evidence for it, this not being a, an issue um, at all up till now in any sort of way is because of the regulation management regime. So that's kind of obvious, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It's the go, it'd be the obvious one to... to um, to posit as the reason for that. So that reinforces, you know, keeping with that. Yeah, right. So the it's a, it's a convenient scapegoat. The only reason we haven't changed the world for the better using genetic engineering is because of the regulations on it. Then if yeah. I convince you of that, you don't blame me for spending all your money being a genetic engineer and not delivering any product. Well, that's what the National Party and the ACT Party have been saying in their policies. Yeah, I know. But um, that's why that's that's exactly how we're being held back. Well, if you look, if you compare us to countries that the National Party, the ACT Party, and and many of my colleagues would look to as far more permissive in the regulation of genetic modification, such as the United States, they've had far more, in their view, permissive legislation for the use of these techniques for 30, 40 years, but they still only produce a couple of genetically modified kinds of plants. Yeah. And those plants are herbicide uh, resistant or produce an insecticide. So all of the liberalization of the regulation has not produced a plethora of wonderful products from the United States in all of that time. That, that doesn't benefit the average person. That benefits the scale growers wanting to ring in uh, or ring out a few percentage increase points in their yields, I would have yeah. thought. Yes, and it doesn't increase yields. So uh, okay. we, 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 know, we know that there are other biotechnologies that you can use to increase yield with, with fewer environmental uh, bad impacts as well. But even if what you said was it did benefit somebody because there's fewer pre-harvest losses or it is a general benefit if farmers make a little bit money, more money. Even if you said that that was a benefit, it still isn't um, evidence that regulation has prevented us getting other benefits. Now, this is an old stat, but the USDA stopped collecting this stat because of just how embarrassing it was. In 2005, they published uh, a report listing that there were thousands of applications for field trials of genetically modified plants that were drought tolerant. Zero are on the market. Yeah. So by 2005, there were already thousands of promises of genetically modified plants that would be drought tolerant. Zero are available to farmers even 20 years later. And how much would that have cost to get to zero? That would have cost a lot. I mean, if you even look at the New Zealand investment in in genetic engineering as a biotechnology solution, the biggest single investor in that is the New Zealand government yeah. in New Zealand. And what's, what have they private. got from it for their money, for our money? 
Yeah. And, and the argument is, oh, it's because of social rejection. Well, uh, you, you can't be both a capitalist to say that, you know, you, you need uh, investment to produce capital that people will invest in and then turn around and say that you don't have to pay attention to the market. But it isn't just market rejection. Yeah. It's a failure to produce products that are going to behave as advertised. So who would invest in this if there are literally no great leaps forward or any obvious, you know, product yeah. wins in the real world? Who would, what's taxpayers, suckers? <laughs> well, once again, though, I do think the use I mean, I know we've got to fund you. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> Thanks for making my conflict of interest so apparent. But um, the, but we, we, the, the research is valuable. But the question is, should we invest in making these products? One of the key drivers in this whole story, in any technology story, is fundamental intellectual property. So you, the big investors, will follow those who have the most fundamental claim. Just look at the whole CRISPR-Cas story, right. you know, the argument between Berkeley and MIT over who owns the fundamental patent. The uh, patent from Columbia that's now, I don't know, 25 or 30 years old, the, the biggest sell, uh, revenue patent for any university was for genetic engineering. Okay. And, and it's behind how you made those uh, herbicide-tolerant plants. The, so, so they're looking for the big win, and they're looking to own the fundamental IP because any, any way in which that's licensed or resold or modified can produce some kind of income, even if it's a high-risk venture. So IP itself is a commodity, and it's on the market as a commodity. Is this really the, 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 the commodity we're actually talking about here is fundamentally IP? So really, um, uh, scientists like yourself, um, the, the goal is to produce a fundamental piece of IP that someone buys, whether they use it or not, to um, head people off at the past later on, whatever they whatever the reasons are for buying that. Well, that doesn't mean much to people like me, i got to say. Um, in the real world, I mean, that's just an industry hidden away on its own, which, you know, I mean, should taxpayers be funding that? Well, this is so this is a fundamental philosophical decision that countries like New Zealand made in the 1980s. The Reagan and Thatcher neoliberal liberal revolution said that the way to return the public to the public a benefit of research was to capture for public institutions like universities to capture their intellectual property and license it to private industry so that you didn't have to spend as many tax dollars that to corrupts support universities. universities. Sorry to jump in, but that obviously will corrupt the institutions because it's not about knowledge anymore. It's about the smartest way you can you can you can plug into a long a long term funding, you know, yes. to suck on. I'm sorry yes. to say it like that. That's exactly the argument, right? So it turns you know public institutions into uh, com compresses them into a commercial market. The questions we ask are not necessarily what is the best solution to a problem. The questions we ask are what are the 
solutions that will lead to an IP innovation that can be licensed to a company who will then return some of those royalties to the university or to the public institution. Which underpins a uh, part or proportion of the funding of that university. And now that's an even more, more of an issue, isn't it? Because universities aren't what they used to be. They're bigger institutions. They lot more bums on seats, a lot more admin going on. They need the cash flow. Well, and, and there's been a decrease in the proportion of public money that goes to these public institutions. Right. Yep. And in part, that's justified because they should be driving up their own revenue streams through producing IP. So the, the contract gets broken with society because instead of a university being the place where you could get a, a good uh, oversight of all the problems and solution space, they've become far more attracted to solution space that can be licensed, which means that we look for technological solutions to social problems rather than social solutions to social problems. And that's where the technocrats try and assert themselves, obviously, which is a world, the kind of world we seem to be living in right now. What's your sense of the average member of the public's view on this? Mine is that they're un even if they don't know much about it, they're uncomfortable with people playing God. That that could be it. I mean, but um, and 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 that kind of language, unfortunately, is used against them, right? Yeah. So what so what happens is uh, now, for example, one of the most compelling arguments for changing the legislation is to say that what we're doing in the laboratory is like what happens in nature. So you hear this argument a lot. That, that's not true, is it? It's it's not because nature isn't scalable in the same way that the technology is. Yeah. And it's the scalability which is the root cause of harm as well as benefit. Yeah. But what they're trying to do is say, oh, the, the different chemical bonds we're creating are chemical bonds that can be created in nature too. And this, is, this misleads people because the non-technical public doesn't have that kind of technical language to confront the technocrats, as you call them, yeah. that are providing them with this narrative. Yet their their intuition is telling them that there's something they want to be and maybe should be concerned about. It's just that that concern is not being taken as seriously, except as possibly a way to manipulate you through metaphors into thinking that the outcome is something that should comfort you. Because yeah, it seems that nature and, you know, that evolutionary um, survival of the fittest kind of um, approach is is a is kind of a slow motion process that's driven on almost an infinite number of levels because there are so it's so comp the system is so complex. When you're doing one thing, a bit of editing, and I don't mean to make it sound that simple, in the lab, uh, that's only one intervention. In nature, there could be a million kind of nuances driving the mutation or the or, or the evolution of something, right? I mean, the, the two just don't compare, surely. And and that is exactly the point. Um, so when it the same number of genetic changes can occur in nature as in a laboratory, but when I do it in a laboratory, I change the concentration. I change the number of organisms with exactly the same change. Uh, and I increase the number of organisms with unintended changes that I didn't know I also made at the same time. So I change those scales. 
a random mutation that occurs spontaneously in nature is controlled by nature herself. That doesn't mean you can't get something bad from nature. Obviously, you can get things that are bad from nature. But then a whole that system kicks in and judges that as well, right? And and, And nature adapts to that. But when I create something either in the lab or, as I'm saying, now with these new reagents, I can do it outside in a field. I convert all a huge number of organisms, intended and unintended organisms for exposure, all at the same time. And that is what's unprecedented as an analog to nature. Spontaneous events occur regularly, but at a very low density, very rare. You yeah. can't you can't go out in the field and will a certain kind of change to happen. You have to wait for it. I, I liken it to Archimedes' lever, right? So, you, you know, Archimedes said, if you give me a piece of wood long enough, a fulcrum to place it on, yep. I can shift the earth. What was his technology? His technology wasn't a piece of wood made from a genetically modified tree. His no. technology was a means to shift the earth at will faster and more regularly than if he had to wait for it to shift spontaneously. Now, if everybody had one of those levers, it's going to be pretty hard to walk on Earth. And that's what technology does. It equips more people to do more things in a more uh, concentrated way than would happen spontaneously in nature. And when, when a technology does that, that's primarily the reason it should be regulated. It is only regulation that keeps us safe from ourselves. So from our chat here, what what I'm coming away with is that there's actually more reasons to stay regulated than there were before now. I I think so. You know, the Mm -hmm. picture is clearer now than it was before. Yes. Is that right? Uh, That's the conclusion I draw as well, that you you don't necessarily need more stringent regulations but we definitely shouldn't be going down the pathway of removing regulations on things um, a- under some pretext of normative judgments about nature and, and manipulative words like precision. Right. Okay. Yeah, precision. What do you think will happen here then? What do you think the outcome will be, given that plenty of people have had their say before and sometimes, you know, the great bulk are not listened to? I think that uh, I, I don't know. I don't like to. I don't like to look into the future. And 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 politics and social sciences aren't in my my grab bag. But when you when you think about the big markets and and our big companies like Fonterra, they're they are have have a lot of influence on what we actually do, regardless yeah. of what we say we're going to do. Do we know what they're saying? Well, Europe right now is in the same debate we are. Like I say, it's happening yeah, yeah. internationally, and that's not by accident. Uh, so uh, the, right now, the European Commission is consulting on also changing their regulatory framework for this. If Europe changes its regulatory framework, that will have a big impact on liberalization we'll them, in New probably. Zealand. Will we? We'll just yeah, follow probably. Or, or at least we will open the door to follow them, and then it'll depend on whether big companies, exporting companies like Fonterra, decide that that would close their markets, regardless of what Europe does. But the tricky bit, and which the, what I don't like, is Europe is was the leader in making companies 
label products that included these kinds of manipulations and the organisms yep. behind them. If and it's one thing to say, well, let's not do as stringent a safety or risk assessment on those on some of these products. It's very different to say that from to say, let's define them out of scope of the legislation. Because as soon as you define them out of scope of the legislation, then you also don't have to label them. So you don't have to tell people yep. that they're getting them. And people can't exercise their normal market choices because they're not informed by the market about what's what's in that food or whatever the product is that's we can't tolerate that can we well this is exactly what national is trying to do they're going to define uh, trying to define out of scope things that we would have otherwise thought were genetically modified organisms right so complete ignorance yeah, and then you don't have it. to declare them. You don't have to declare them internationally. You don't have to declare them under the card. There's nothing protocol. on the label that will, would tell you. Mm -hmm. That's not good. Yeah, whereas that honestly, you know, if it was going to be an honest process, what you'd say is we don't think that you need to do all of these safety things on some of these processes, but they're still within scope of the legislation, yeah. and therefore other social oversight mechanisms are still in play. Well, you know, something as fundamental as food, you, you need to be empowered with every bit of information, don't you? If there's any modification potential at all. Well, you know, even if you're an ultra capitalist, you would say that the market only works if it's an informed market. And how do you have and a baseline? Where do, where do you get your baseline from in that case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no baseline. So, yeah, no baseline. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, it, we're sort of coming up on time for the chat. Is there anything that you want to say that I've missed or that you've missed that our listeners uh, need to know? Um, after well, I would just say that the, 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 the way we need to handle uh, these technologies discussions is not to make them uh, led by those who have an interest in yep. changing your mind. They should be led by what are the problems we have in society? What are the full range of solutions we have to those? And where a technology is a promising way to achieve a, a solution for an acute problem, let's entertain it. But for the vast majority of cases, technologies don't solve problems, they just shift the problem. Right. And so if we continue to allow crises to emerge and then invite people to present hype about technological solutions, we're constantly going to be investing in failed technological solutions. Yeah. And we might just get whacked in the face by it. Yes. We don't want that. <laughs> okay, it's been really interesting chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on. No, uh, thank you. RCR, Professor Jack Heineman. Really cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.